Hello, folks, and well, happy Memorial Day or whatever other day it happens to be for you. I don't know when you're listening to this. Um, welcome to our midweek Bible study podcast. If my voice sounds a bit different, by the way, it's because I'm coming off a really bad uh, episode of allergies up in Austin over the weekend, and my throat is a little raw, so it may sound a bit different. It may, you know, break down coughing halfway through. We'll just wait and see. Um, so we'll also try and keep this Bible study, this podcast, a bit shorter uh, to make sure I don't end up coughing along up halfway through. Uh, and I want to remind you folks, as always, that you are welcome. If you would like to submit questions and things uh, about the Bible readings during the week, you can do that through email. My email is fforest.divinity at asburycc.org. Uh, you can also put those up on the church Facebook page. And so I'm going to dive in. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. So we're in uh, 2 Samuel, and we're actually coming up on also on the end of John's Gospel. Um, now this week, you have already read, if you're reading along with our one-year Bible, you've read along the uh, really weird stories of, <laughs> of Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, who are three of David's children. Um, Amnon is his firstborn, and then Tamar and Absalom are children he has with uh, one of his other wives, because remember, David has multiple wives. Um, and so the story is that, you know, Amnon somehow, you know, falls in love with his half-sister Tamar and uh, is convinced by one of his friends, who also happens to be his cousin, uh, to essentially trick Tamar into coming into his bedchambers with no one else there, uh, where he, you know, by pretending to be sick and asking to have her sent so she can care for him while he's sick. And when he has her alone, he rapes her. And as if that weren't bad enough, then after that, right, the, the text says after that he he hates her, he rejects her after that, kicks her out and yells at her, doesn't want anything to do with her after that. <clears throat> and so this is, this is just, just disgusting and disturbing. And, and, you know, to be clear, there, there's a, there's a portion in there when, when Amnon is, uh, it's like he's attempting to just convince her to sleep with him before he forces himself on her. And, and she objects and says, no, don't do this, you know, just. If you just tell King David, I'm sure he'll give me to you in marriage. And that seems odd to us. Um, but in all actuality, marriages between half-brothers and half-sisters weren't all that unusual uh, in the ancient world, especially and particularly with royal families. Um, that, that was much more common than we would think because you want to preserve the royal bloodline. Um, and in fact, it wasn't 
when you dig into like the history of the ruling dynasties of all kinds of ancient kingdoms and empires, you'll find that um, a lot of those kings were married to half sisters. Uh, occasionally, you might even have some full sisters slip in there. Um, so what she's disgusted by is probably not just the fact that this is her half-brother, right? It's, it's the fact that he's, one, they're not married, which is obviously a problem, but also that she's not consenting to this. Um, so, you know, the, the part where just just he rapes his half-sister, this, this on, on purely human grounds, we're horrified by this. You know, you don't need to actually do any kind of cultural translation there to understand why this is so horrifying. But what makes it worse is that afterwards, right, there's this complete rejection of her, right? He says he hates her, kicks her out, yells at her, screams at her, drives her off. Um, now, this is not an unusual behavior. You'll hear countless stories from women in our day and age who, ha who are not always raped in this way, but certainly coerced into sleeping with someone they weren't all that interested in. Or sometimes who they were interested in, but they felt coerced anyway. Um, and then afterwards, the man just seems totally disinterested in them. Of course, what's happening there is not love, it's lust. Very different force. So that verse that talks about Amnon loving his sister, really what's happening is he's lusting after her. And what makes this worse for Tamar is that now she's no longer a virgin. She's ineligible to be married. She'll never have a family. She'll never have children. And in the ancient world, that means her life is ruined. The Really, the one way that she could contribute to society has been stripped of her, right? She, she can't do this anymore. She will always be reliant on the good graces of her own family to take her in. Now, fortunately for her, it seems as if her brother Absalom is going to do just that, right? He takes her into his house. And he is outraged that his sister has been treated this way by one of their own brothers. And so what Amnon has done is just despicable and disgusting and vile. And so in a sense, when, when Absalom kills him, we, we kind of want to be on his side, right? We want to be on Absalom's side here. It seems like Amnon had it coming. He deserved it. Now, the oldest manuscripts we have of this story add on in the little verse that that David, even though he knew what Amnon had did, did not punish him because, quote, he loved him and he was his firstborn. So here again, David's flaws are laid out for everyone to see. I mean, there's no question, no question, that he should have punished Amnon. There's none. And it's hard to imagine 
having so much affection for your son that you couldn't bring yourself to punish him for raping your daughter. Like, that's hard to comprehend. <coughs> and yet we're told that's what happens. And, and as a side note, this story is a prime example of why the church has taught for so long that monogamy is the only acceptable way to be married. That's why we forbid polygamy. You will not find anywhere in the Bible a specific command that says thou shalt not have more than one wife or anything like that. It's nowhere in there. There is no specific teaching about that. However, every time, every time that a biblical figure has multiple wives, things go horribly, horribly wrong. And here you have a prime example, right? You've got kids from different parents, and, and look at these bizarre, twisted relationships they develop. And there's also the, the creation narrative in Genesis where God talks about the two becoming one flesh. That's, that's the theological foundation of the teaching of monogamy. But then we have all these examples of polygamous marriages where it never works well for anybody. It's always terrible. The kids are always screwed up. Um, that's a little fun side note for you. So the rest of this story is, is I mean, it's just depressing. Um, you'll see Absalom will eventually rebel against David, but what happens first is that after Absalom kills Amnon, he flees. He runs off to a different town where his grandfather lives, right? his maternal grandfather. And he hides out there, and he's there for some time until David is convinced to welcome him back into Jerusalem. Which he does, but oddly... You know, he allows him to return to Jerusalem, but, like, never goes to see him, never talks to him. It makes it pretty clear, in other words, that he, he that, that relationship is irreparably broken. Which is somewhat understandable. One of your sons murders one of your other ones, you're going to have a hard time being in their presence. But that treatment of him, making it perfectly clear that David's done with him, seems to create this resentment in Absalom that will lead to his rebellion. <coughs> He's incredibly successful, too, we should point out. Right? He wins the support of the people in Jerusalem, at least, and presumably some broader support outside the city. And actually forces David out of Jerusalem. And so the country is going to be divided in this bloody, violent civil war. David eventually wins the war. But Absalom is killed in the process. 
So now David's lost two sons. And he only has himself to blame. If he had done the right thing and punished Amnon in the beginning, then Absalom wouldn't have killed him. Now, it's quite possible David might have felt like the death penalty was the only appropriate punishment for Amnon. But at least he would have deserved it instead of the death that Absalom was going to fight. So all this just spirals out of control. David loses two sons. And you can see that even though he's God's anointed king and overall he is a pretty good ruler, he makes a ton of mistakes. And his mistakes have huge consequences. Every terrible event in here he is directly responsible for, except for the rape of Tamar. But the way he responds to it sets everything else in motion. He, as the king and as the father, had he just done the right thing in the beginning, none of the rest of this story would have happened. His failures on both fronts, both as a king and as a father, lead to this civil war, all these deaths, all this violence. So again, we can see that David is far, far from perfect. But what we can learn from that is that it does not take perfection to be a man after God's heart. In fact, we might even see in his willingness to forgive Amnon, we might see a glimpse of the mercy that God offers to all of us in Christ. And and maybe a bit of a challenge for our own hearts too, because we want to support Absalom here. Amnon had it coming. We don't like to see evil go unpunished. But that is precisely what God's mercy and forgiveness offers to each and every one of us. He offers to let our evil Go unpunished. That is the radical mercy and forgiveness of God, which knows no bounds. It has no limits. So perhaps, perhaps David actually was right to forgive Amnon. We're not actually told if Amnon was repentant or felt bad about this or tried to make things. We're not told anything about what Amnon does afterwards. Maybe David was modeling the forgiveness of God. I don't know, by the way, if that's the correct interpretation of that verse. It's just something interesting to me that, that occurred as I was preparing for this. That here he's... <coughs> I, you know, I don't know if you can compare this to God's forgiveness or not, but... <coughs> Ooh, sorry about that. But, but 
clearly something to think about. Was David modeling God's forgiveness? Now, I want to just make a couple of quick comments about the Gospel of John, and then I'm done because my throat is just about to give out on me here. Um, We're getting close to the end of John. In fact, you'll finish it this week. And I want you to notice, in the very last chapter, you probably have noticed this before, but it's always worth reminding you, you know, Peter denies Jesus three times on the night when he's arrested. And in in John's Gospel at the end, He's given three opportunities to profess his love for Jesus. And I always just love that. It's beautiful. It makes me tear up every time because you have that wonderful symmetry. Jesus gives him that chance for every time he denied him to proclaim his love for him three times. That just shows you a bit about the character of the God we serve. Now for those public denials here, here is your chance to make up for those times you denied me in public. Um, I love that. Um, some people struggle with John's gospel, and I understand that. I mean, it's, it's very different. John's gospel does not include parables, does not really include exorcisms, and those are both um, huge features of the other three gospels. Lots of parables, lots of exorcisms. Lots of teaching about the kingdom of God. John's gospel focuses on miracles. Uh, It usually refers to them as signs. So John's gospel is all about looking at the things that Jesus did that served as signs pointing people to who he truly was. So it focuses much less on Jesus' teachings and more on the sort of weird supernatural things that were happening when he was around. Kind of like saying in hindsight, oh man, we really should have picked up on this a lot sooner than we actually did. And there's a theory that John's gospel was actually, it, we know it was the last of the gospels to be written. And some people suggest that maybe maybe the reason it's so different than the other three is that when, when he was sitting down to write this gospel, he looked at the other three and decided to sort of cover all the things he felt the other three gospels had missed. Like he's plugging the gaps to make sure we get the fullest picture possible of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and I quite like that theory. I think it's it, it's interesting, and I think it's probably pretty accurate that, that the reason John's gospel is so different is that they're trying to find the places, the things that the other gospels missed in their story and fill in the blanks. Um and in a sense, that's what the first three are doing as well, but not quite so comprehensively because they're being written much closer together and they're telling the story from very similar viewpoints and they're all heavily focused on the teachings of Jesus and the kingdom of God and what that looks like. And you have all these parables about the kingdom of God being something that's small and hard to see, but that grows when you're not looking. And it's, it's very interesting. And, and John's gospel just focuses on miracles and signs and wonders and all these incredible things um, as if to, to say, look, you heard what he taught. You heard all this stuff about the kingdom of God, and it's all great. But what really convinced us that this guy was who he said he was were all these other things that happened. So that's what John's gospel is doing, focusing on the signs and the wonders and filling in the blanks to give us the fullest picture possible 
of who Jesus was. So that, my friends, is John's gospel. I'll be back with you uh, next week with our next Bible study. And until then, my friends, if you have any questions, please send them in. And God bless you all. Goodbye.